Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners, to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Uh, and of course, uh, every week we like to bring topical issues to to the fore. And I've just got a copy of my local newspaper in front of me, and it quotes Jaspreet um, at her local council, uh, trying to put the acid on why that council might use a very um, high stakes um, number for its coastal management. And so I thought because of uh, that and you've heard us talk about ECSP and RCPs before in terms of climate change and and the like. Uh, in terms of coastal management, we'd get on to guests today. One, uh, Dr. William DeLonghi, and I know I've got that wrong, Longer, I think it is in its true sense, from Waikato University. And the other one is a former guest that we've had on, um, Sean Rush, Rush, a barrister from Sean Rush Energy and Infrastructure Law Limited. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, so look, this is getting, uh, the heat's coming on in terms of coastal management. It's not a day goes by when I don't see another council's got another report about uh, sea level um, concerns around their their area. And of course, Jasper, the one I've just quoted is the Southern District Council. I know you're in Capity, Sean, and, uh, and Willem, you've done several assessments around the country over time. So, Willem, tell us and sort of... Um, uh, and I haven't introduced you very well. I know um, I was going to say, perhaps give some of your credentials if you could, and why you're you're overall this topic quite well. Um, um, and give us a one hundred and one. What is the uh, concern here? Okay, um, I've worked in the area of coastal hazards um, since the early eighties, um, and basically I've been in the position at the University of Waikato since nineteen eighty four which coincidentally was the first year that I appeared as an expert witness in a high court case relating to sea level rise. So I've been dealing with this on and off over the years. Um, I'm, I have to say it's not something I enjoy doing going into court. Um, and so I've only been involved in a few high profile cases, um, which I think uh, set precedents are important. So I've always been interested in, in sea level and coastal hazards being a foreigner who was born below sea level in the um, Rhine Delta in Europe on uh, Apolda. Um, and our lives there were ruled by um, high sea levels. And um, my ancestors lived there for uh, 1,400 years building up coastal defences. So I tend to view that um, sea level issues can be managed. My family has done it for a, a very long time. Um, the thing is, is that when we look at sea level, we need to recognise there are two types of sea level involved. Um, there is a, what we refer to as the absolute sea level, or also known as eustatic sea level, which is the mean water level out in the open ocean. And that's driven by things like uh, the ocean temperature, the ocean salinity, and the amount of ice that we have on land. So it, it's driven by these big factors that change the volume of water in the ocean basins. And the one that's really important to us living at the coast is what we refer to as the relative sea level. Mm -hmm. So that's the consequence 
of what's happening in the open ocean plus the movement of the land and in fact a few other complicated things like ocean currents and winds and all sorts of other things that can affect the, the sea level at the shoreline. So that's the one that's important to us. And so what we have to remember is that for the future, all of these fancy computer models predict the global ocean level out in the open ocean, and their track record in doing that is not particularly good. What's important to us is at the coast, and we've been measuring the sea level at the coast at some locations for more than a century. And in practice, that data is way better for, for our management purposes because um, we've, we've been measuring it. We can look at the trends. We can look at the variability, which is the important thing, because we know that there are significant changes in sea level between the El Nino events that we're just starting and the La Nina events that we've had for the last three years. And those things are not captured by climate models. So at the coast, we're concerned about relative sea level, which involves um, land movement. And that's always been a tricky thing in the, the 40 years I've been teaching it and, and researching in it roughly, because we couldn't put a good handle on, on the vertical land movement. We've, we've got data that tells us how the shoreline moves. Um, and we need to somehow take that away from the tide gauges. Um, but that's improved. We now have continuous GPS. We've got better surveying methods. And so we can now extract the land movement and, and a, a very good study was done by Paul Dennis and others. And that shows us that the rate of sea level rise for New Zealand is 1.4 to 1.5 millimetres per year over the last 100 odd years with no sign of acceleration. So pretty constant. And that's, if we translate it into a century, that's 14 to 15 centimetres which is not a problem in anyone's book. So the issue we're having is reconciling what we've measured over the last century or so with what the computer models are predicting for the future. And that is just not happening. And we have the latest thing with, with the sea rise people who are saying, oh, we need to take these global predictions and tack on the land movement which is strictly correct, but we should use the right number. So as I've said, for New Zealand, the number is 1.5 millimetres per year. And they're trying to use numbers between 3 and 12 millimetres per year. And unsurprisingly, they suddenly say there's a crisis, there's a problem. Even at those big numbers, our history tells us that sea level changes have not been catastrophic for New Zealand. So we can go back to what, 2016, and we had the Kaikoura earthquake. Parts of the coastline there rose eight metres yep. in the space of a few minutes. So they had eight metres of sea level drop. And at the other extreme, parts of the coast dropped by three metres. So they had three metres of sea level rise in a couple of minutes. And what happened? Not a lot. We had significant effects on the ecology for a short period of time for those poor marine creatures that were lifted out of the water. And we had a few bits of the coast that got inundated, but the shoreline adjusted and they're not inundated anymore. So if we can 
survive three meters of sea level rise in a couple of minutes. Three meters of sea level rise over time spans of centuries to millennia, which is what they're talking about, probably isn't a problem at all. And so that's where we're at. We're trying to reconcile predictions that are based on the implausible, exceptionally unlikely scenario that the MFE pushes, the top-end scenario, and the real-world data that says, yes, sea level is rising, but at such a rate that we can quite easily cope with it, provided we maintain our coastal structures and we don't do anything silly, you know, like building our houses below sea level, yep. like my family did for 1,400 years. Well, that's a great that's a great uh, intro uh, to this whole discussion. Thanks, Willem. Um, it sets the scene for those of us that have no um, no uh, academic knowledge of this. It, it doesn't seem that hard, does it? Uh, so why are we? Uh, and I don't mean to under under underrate uh, the effort that people have gone in to study this, but why do you think it is then that um, so many councils? around New Zealand, New Zealand especially, well, that's what we're talking about today, are, are hell-bent on using these implausible scenarios uh, when clearly uh, they should be inf informed enough to know that they are, in fact, implausible. And I know, Sean, we'll come to you in a minute because you're you're onto this stuff as well. But what's your well, view, Willem? Well, I was going to suggest Sean might, might, <laughs> might be a better place to answer it. Um, well... I originally had a position of advising the New Zealand government on sea level rise. And at that time, our philosophy, which, which was actually written into the Resource Management Act, was to consider the most likely scenario, what was most likely to happen. And then we had a shift in policy where the precautionary principle sort of took hold and in fact, in my view, went to the extreme. And so the philosophy was, well, if it might happen, we should plan for it. Despite the fact, if you read the, the guidance, it says, oh, this is for stress testing your, your plans. Mm. So, you know, you're a council and you've got a, a management plan for the coast. Well, by all means, look at it and say, what's the worst that can happen and what's going to happen to us if that occurs? That's stress testing in my view. But for planning purposes, we go for the most likely because we don't sit there and say, oh, there is an 80% chance of a major earthquake in Wellington, according to GNS, in the next 50 years. Let's immediately evacuate Parliament which is the extreme precautionary approach that they seem to be applying to the coast. So there's a lot of inconsistency. But as to why they're doing it, that's for the politicians and the, and the public to try and figure out. It's not something that's my speciality. Right, well, that's does, fair, fair It does comment. come to the politics, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't. Yeah, it, does, it absolutely comes to the politics. And, of course, um, those of us at the, the, uh, the pointy end of paying the bills, um, are feeling the, the politics of all this stuff uh, through rates and taxes. So, um, yeah, but we'll bring in you, Sean, right now and see um, you've put a lot of effort into uh, your area on the Kapiti Coast uh, and and 
and your feedback through councils there. How are you how are you getting on? What's what's the upshot of all this? And I, and you've written oh, some really good articles. I know that we'll talk about. But I just in a say a few words about how I ended up where I am. Yeah, well, that's um, fine. So I was. Um, I've been a lawyer most of my career, and some people think it's important that I should disclose that I worked for the petroleum industry, um, and I did, and I'm very proud that I did, uh, and I hope to do so some more of it. Um, but I'm a, I'm also a public lawyer, and, and I've been a criminal defence lawyer, and I've done other types of law, planning law, infrastructure. Um, I've been a Wellington City Councillor, so a, a politician of sorts, and I stood for election in the old tacky electorate for the recent election, didn't get anywhere, but but did it all the same. Um, and I have a master's in climate change science and policy from Vic University. So I went back to university in 2019, studied full time, uh, and got uh, my degree with merit. Um, and and it's a real unique sort of combination of skills because it's although I want to be very clear, I'm not an expert in climate science, and that's Willem is 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 is, but I'm not. But nevertheless. Um, I became very interested in all the different climate measurements and indicators and, and tools uh, that particularly in the Wellington district uh, when I was a city councillor because I was doing my research at the same time. And I followed very closely the the, the, the sea level um, and measured at Queen's Wharf where my, my son goes to school um, over to Eastbourne every day. And um, and then kept an eye on on anything that might affect the Wellington area, um, rain rain gauge measurements, um, uh, wind wind vane measurements. Um, Greater Wellington would get annual reports from NIWA um, on on extremes and so forth. So I followed all that. And uh, and I guess um, more more recently, I've been looking at the sea level estimates that came out of a project. Um, led by Victoria University scientists, guys that I, I, I know, not that well, but I know, um, with GNS scientists and some folks from overseas, and that's known as the Sea Rise Project. And, uh, and they came out with these um, very, very um, concerning uh, commentary. First of May last year, um, Tony would be inundated within... 20 or 30 years. Um, same with the South Coast, uh, my constituents there, um, and then Kapiti as well. And, and I just knew that, you know, if if that was the case, and, and the reason was, was because there's subsidence going on that we didn't know about. And I know that we do know about what they call vertical land movement. We've known about it for a long time. In fact, Willem actually sent me a paper about it two, three years ago. So um, this is nothing new. And so I started asking some questions, and and I used to be an asset manager of the Maui pipeline. That's the big pipeline that goes up to Huntley. And soil movement was really important. It's a steel pipeline carrying a lot of gas that a lot of hospitals and businesses depend on, and uh, any sort of movement of soil there uh, we need to know about. So I knew about the techniques and, and, and reached out to some business acquaintances that are experts in this space, professional scientists. And they were also scratching their heads. Um, and uh, meanwhile, the uh, the Prime Minister was being interviewed. James Shaw was being interviewed. Um, um, Rod Carr was being interviewed. Um, Al Jazeera was, was broadcasting that New Zealand's sinking. And it was all a big media fest that happened the same week as the Ministry for the Environment kicked off their managed retreat consultation. Who would have thought? What a coincidence. <laughs> 
So anyway, I guess um, I started uh, asking questions and very quickly didn't get answers. You know, I was an elected official with uh, thousands of affected coastal residents and asking uh, the guys at GNS about their studies um, and, and at Victoria University. Um, and unfortunately, in the end, I had to use the Official Information Act to get any information. Um, I had actually reached out to Willem with a, a, a professional scientist who was uh, working as the coastal planner for Christchurch City Council. Uh, he was also scratching his head. Uh, so we offered to have a meeting with the project leaders and they declined that. They would only meet with um, with members of the public or with other councillors, but but not. And I said, I, I think we need to iron out these academic issues before we sort of, you know, start briefing councillors. And the thing is that uh, in the climate space, I think as you alluded to before, um, it's immensely political. And there seems to be a desire by some people to believe the worst is happening. Um, and I don't quite get it. I don't understand why the coastal residents of the South Coast um, would uh, would not question what's going on. Some of them have lived there for 50 years. They know that the sea level's not rising at the rate that they've talked about. Um, but nevertheless, um, people do. And I know that my councillors, many of my councillors would uh, would not be interested in hearing a a, a view that's contrary. Contrary. Um, you know, just to give you an idea. So, so the, the, the model they use um, starts in 2004 with data going through to about 2010. And then they extrapolate that forward through to 2020, 2030, then up to 2130. So we can actually already test um, their model for accuracy. So their model said that in 2020, sea level would have risen by 15 centimetres. Now, over the 20th century, it's well understood and accepted knowledge that the sea level rose by 20 centimetres. And New Zealand was about in that frame as well. So they're saying that 15 centimetres over 16 years. That's on their worst-case P50 scenario with vertical land movement. The actual was two centimetres, which is spot on the average for the 20th century. Uh, two, two, two millimetres a year, uh, I think it is, there or thereabouts. So, you know, I've, I've tried to engage with Ministry for Environment, um, and, you know, these these extreme scenarios uh, come from the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN Climate Panel. Now, I was an expert reviewer for the uh, the latest um, report, the first one, which deals with the physical science and so forth. Now, it doesn't really make me an expert, but uh, I did participate, and uh, and it was a good good experience. Um, but but the the use of these more extreme scenarios was never meant to uh, reflect back into policy, um, as Willem says. Um, you know we're supposed to be looking at what's a likely sort of scenario, um, not one that requires you know the ice sheets that have been there for millions of years suddenly melting over the next hundred years. They haven't even started melting, uh, as Willem says. Um, Although there is some debate in the um, uh, amongst scientists about whether an acceleration has been detected, the fact is that it's hard to see that there has been. And certainly the literature uh, that I've seen up to the end of the 20th century is, confirms that there's been no acceleration. Um, 
And then the literature also says you need a data set that's about 60 years or more just to make sure that what you're seeing is actually not a natural variation uh, as a consequence of different um, ocean currents that can affect uh, the relative sea level as well. So, yeah, you, you've got this um, these the scenarios, and I'll, I'll mention, yeah, the highest one is SSP 5-8.5. So those numbers mean watts per square metre. Uh, that's the amount of energy um, that uh, is expected to be increased at the top of the atmosphere, I think it is, um, as a consequence of, of uh, greenhouse gas emissions at, at a very high uh, rate through to 2100. But, I mean, um, that, that what they were trying to do was bookend, bookend what, uh, what, what's the maximum um, there are two. There are two um, intermediate um, emissions pathways, um, and then there was a very low one, which no one really thinks is we can't really do because we're we're so far uh, down the track with emissions. So, the two in the middle were were more likely to be the ones that we settle on. In fact, it's looking like it's the second one uh, from the bottom, uh, which is really good news. Actually, it's good news for the climate, good news for the world, and um, the coming uh, meeting in. Um, uh, the COP26 or whatever it is, it's kicking off in a couple of weeks. It doesn't even mention this top end anymore. Um, and actually, they, um, you know, it, it's part of the briefing material. So, you know, why do we carry on where we are? I mean, I think that um, firstly, there's a lot of inertia. There's a lot of attachment to that high end because it actually makes your climate model do something that is newsworthy. Um, dare I say it? Um, it also you do want to keep using it because then you can you can see compare what it does to what you know it did five years ago or 15 or 20 years ago so you know there's no harm in, in using it as Willem says for stress testing and, and out of interest um, what happens is if you run a climate model on a, on a low emission scenario you might find you don't see anything really changing in your coastal environment whereas if you you put four million volts through it um, bang out pops, you know the cliffs are going to go, or um, or inundation, and you 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 then start recognising well what's the most sensitive part of the coastal planning that we need to focus on. But you wouldn't you don't use it for um, policy making. I wouldn't have thought anyway. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where my involvement. So I I, um, I I didn't want to bring this up during the election campaign. I thought it would be a distraction. Um, there are members of the company coast very concerned, wanting to organise meetings. I said, no, 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 we're focusing on uh, the things that matter, cost of living, of course. Uh, sorry, I was with the, the ACT Party. And, um, you know, and, and they had a very pragmatic approach to climate change, which I felt was the right approach, which is to benchmark our performance on emissions reductions to our main trading partners. And, and if they want to cut their cattle herds, then, then we can do that too, but uh, but they aren't, <laughs> so uh, we shouldn't either. Um, it'll push food prices up. So anyway, yeah. So I gave a meeting on Monday uh, to a uh, hundred and fifty odd people um, on the Kapiti Coast. There's a, a, a panel led by uh, Honourable Jim Bolger, um, and they are unfortunately embracing this extreme scenario also with the um the subsidence which isn't happening on the capity coast it's been lifting but during the study they did back in 2004 it was subsiding but that was a transient uh, um, trend 
and it's now reversed and actually the current sea level as measured by Wellington Harbour tide gauge is well below where it was in 2016 when we had the effects of the Kaikoura earthquake. So, yeah, we um, our planners seem to be uh, hell-bent on, on adopting this and I don't, to be fair, it's coming from scientists, um, it's coming from the IPCC, the precautionary principle is as well, and you know who's who's not to embrace a bit, you know, be cautious about what we do for sure. But if you start putting hazard lines on your limbs reports that says things like we expect this to be a challenging environment in 2030 uh, to a coastal property, well, uh, the banks will, will will move, the insurance companies will move, you'll never be able to sell it. And, and it's not based, I don't think it's based on good science. The old science was simply tide gauges. And we've got a network of tide gauges in New Zealand that are well over well, 100 years or more. And, uh, and they uh, are the surveyor's key tool. So I've got my coastal property has been surveyed because we're going to do some renovations. And it says it's, <laughs> it's six metres above sea level. Wow. And they have managed to trigger, you know, use their... Uh, surveying equipment and geodet marks back to the Wellington tide gauge, which they've been doing since the 50s, right? And that's the tried and trusted method that we have uh, built coastal properties. And I think that we, you know, novel new technology is, is to be embraced and welcomed, but it shouldn't be displacing tried and trusted methods that are uh, best international practice, New Zealand's uh, land information online um, guidance that you need to follow. But uh, but councils are, are walking away from all that, all that history, all that knowledge, and asking us to, to look at a, a satellite daily, which no one can really access. So it's really inaccessible. A tide gauge, you can Google Wellington Harbour tide gauge, up will pop a, uh, a web page and you can see what the tide gauges do, and you can look all around the world. Um, and that's, you know, it's a, a robust... Uh, and, that's, and that's why, I mean, modelling, I've often mentioned it here. It's it's a tool of tyrants, the way we are taking this. And uh, listeners, for those who've just joined us, we are today with Professor William DeLong, Senior Lecturer, Earth Sciences by Kettle University, and Barrister Sean Rush, who's graced us on Greenwash for a second time. What we are debating is sea level rises and how it is impacting us. Sean, you just mentioned that we have five scenarios and people who've listened to Greenwashed often, they've heard these films, SSP and RCP, and basically to cut out all the noise, it's these are basically scenarios from the, you know, moderate to the extreme, how 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 we could self-annihilate before the turn of the century. Now, the Ministry for Environment document on sea level rise simply says that look at all the scenarios right up to, I think, 2300. And we've got these five different scenarios and different permutations and combinations of how bad things can get. And since Dawn began today's session by this quote that the, you know, newspaper carried of me in last last week's uh, public workshop on sea level rise in Southland District Council, my question there was, why are we using the worst case scenario, SSB 5, uh, 8.5, I was told, and this is on the slides there, that the Ministry for Environment has requested that this is the only one. The disclaimer at the beginning of the presentation says, SSP 5, 8.5, is what is indicated by the Ministry of Environment's interim guidance to be modeled. So based on that, 
we've come out with some very extreme sea level rises. Some parts around here could be rising, you know, could see the seas rise by as much as four meters. But why should you be worried? What does it translate into in terms of policy for you? I Google and I see, you know, manage retreat. I see more overseas. I see insurances doubling, tripling, quadrupling. And why have we reached this scenario? I'm sure, uh, Professor Willem, there would be others within your fraternity who would agree with you. The way you put things out is very simple. And yet, our government doesn't seem to want to listen. Cause us some very real harm based on these implausible scenarios. Why is that? Yeah, it's it's hard to understand. I think it's it's more that people have have a policy in mind, and this is a way of justifying it. So when when I teach hazards, um, a key component of that is risk, and that's what councillors should be concerned about is the risk to the council, and that means you need to bring in some probability. So way back in my first court case, um, this was a discussion, and it got picked up and set a precedent for the Resource Management Act based on that court case. And that was that you had to have some element of risk. And mm -hmm. so we keep getting told that the scenarios that the IPCC uses have no probabilities attached, which is not actually strictly true. So the scenarios are based on assumptions and the IPCC can assign some probability to the assumptions. So when we look at the 8.5 family, we're looking at assumptions that have less than 1% probability of occurring in the next century. And so if we have one assumption, then we can safely say that that scenario has a 1% probability. But when we start looking at the IPCC scenarios, they require the combination simultaneously of a whole series of assumptions that we burn more coal than exists, that everybody in the world lives at a lifestyle that exceeds the current per capita of the United States. And when you have those, they multiply. So if we have two 1% assumptions, then we're down to um, one ten thousandth of a chance. And, and so the number of assumptions in those extreme scenarios are somewhere between 10 and 15 assumptions. So we're looking at something that's you know, 10 to the minus 20 or smaller wow. in terms of chance. To put it in perspective, that's the sort of probability that the world would be swallowed by a black hole when they turned on the Hadron Collider and then went ahead and did it anyway. Precautionary would say, no, 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 we don't do this bit of fundamental research because there is this ridiculously small probability that the world will disappear in an instant when you turn on the switch. For some reason, there's this whole mythology that's built up around it that not only um, is this bad, but it is going to happen. <clears throat> and there's a whole body of literature produced by people now, which are, if this happens, then this is the consequence. Without saying the chances of this happening is very small, to give it some credit, the AR6 report says, oh, this is implausible, which is 
bureaucratic speak for saying this is impossible, which is really <laughs> where we're at. So it's exceptionally unlikely, which is this 10 to the minus 20 or, or, or smaller. Um, and the and, and we've got to the point where there were, at the time they were set up, multiple possible ways that we might have achieved that outcome. We're at the point now that there is no realistic pathway that we can generate enough CO2 or other greenhouse gases to reach that scenario. Yep. Which is why the IPCC in the fine print have basically said we should stop using it. But as Sean said, the people pushing policy are wedded to it because if we step back and the latest data is suggesting we're actually starting to track at the bottom scenario, the one that was improbable because it required, you know, massive em emission cuts and everything else, which are just not happening. So if we're tracking down at the lower end of that envelope, the consequences are small to, to, to negligible. And if you're trying to drive a policy and, and achieve things like, you know, drastically reducing the farms on this country or um, converting vast swathes of land to pine trees or shifting people away from the coast because, well, they shouldn't be living there. Um, that's not sort of news that you would like to hear. So the science is very definitely suggesting that there should be scenario number six, which is what I've argued in the environment court right from the beginning. And then scenario number six is strictly business as usual. Yep. This is what the trend has been for the last 100 years, and that should be in the mix of scenarios, and it's not. And All of our scenarios are hypothetical situations based on greenhouse gas emissions. And all your planning, you should base it on what's happened. So I've been involved in lots of cases dealing with extreme events and everything else. And the projected changes are at least an order of magnitude smaller than the natural variation. So we've just seen an extreme example of natural variation where the volcanoes erupted at Tonga. Yeah. It's affected sea level because we've ejected a whole lot of water into the stratosphere. And initially, the climate scientists told us, oh, this will come down, you know, we'll have a biblical rainfall event and everything will come back down just as fast as it went up pretty much. You know? mm. Went up in, in, in minutes and it will come down in weeks. It's still up there and it's still coming down. And for some reason, since that eruption, we've miraculously had an increase in rainfall. Yeah. Sea level went down because we pumped some of this water into the atmosphere, and it's now coming back and sea level's rising. And because water is the dominant greenhouse gas, it's, it's had effects on, on global temperatures as well. But, you know, that's one real extreme catastrophic effect on sea level. We have the natural variation between La Nina and, and El Nino. We have a thing called the interdecadal Pacific Oscillation. We have a thing called the um, polar seesaw, where we have melting in the Arctic, which is, uh, occurs for a while, and then it switches to, to melting in the Antarctic. So our media seamlessly switch from 
the Arctic is melting and we're all doomed to the Antarctic is melting and we're all doomed without mentioning the, the recovery and the other end. And this has been going on for as long as we can have data to, to analyze it. And the projected changes are so small, the IPCC report in Chapter 12 produces a diagram that says, when will we see the effects of climate change? And when we look at sea level, we look at extreme weather, in fact, we look at everything except for temperature, we won't see any measurable effect in my lifetime, in the lifetime of any of your listeners, because it's at the end of the century, you know, 100 years from now. Yeah. So should you be planning for a coastal effect that's smaller than the natural variations you see now? So my argument being pragmatic is if you plan for what is happening now, what happens in 100 years' time can be handled by the people then because that's the point at which you might see an effect from the emissions according to all the modeling. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the way that that it's no. being sold to the no. planners. It, it doesn't. And I know it brings back the old adage, take things one day at a time. We seem to think we can sort it all, find it all today. And I'm going to ask a couple of really stupid questions. How did we ever think that just, uh, you know, the sea level rise, we can just control it. I mean, there have to be a whole lot of factors that come into it. When you mentioned the Tongan Glacier, in my head, this question popped up. Something exploded underwater. Did it change the seabed? Did the volume the sea was able to hold increase suddenly because of whatever, those sort of things? Because isn't something happening to the seabed where the seas will hold? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. that sort of thing was automatically came into my head. We don't seem to project any of those. And then as Sean was talking about modeling, whatever gave us the idea that we need to model stuff, which we can just see with the naked eye going to the, uh, you know, watching the tidal tides come and go, why do we need to model something that is evident if we choose to look at it? Yeah, the, the argument when I was involved in, in advising the government was that we were putting infrastructure in place mm. that might last for a century. Mm. And for that infrastructure, we needed the modelling. Um, we haven't had a decision yet, but I've been involved in an environment course court for, for one of our largest ports. And the question was, have you taken into account the effects of climate change? And so I documented what the effects were projected to be and said, well, in 75 years time and the worst case scenario, then during severe storms, they might have some localised flooding of parts of the wharves. But the response was that by that time, the wharf will have to be rebuilt anyway. Yeah. So if mm -hmm. sea level is rising at a rate that it needs to be higher, they will build it higher yeah. when it needs rebuilding. And for most of our coastline, that's fine. At the beginning, I said that it's a complex problem. And, and by focusing just on sea level, and just on vertical land movement is simplifying it to the point where you 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 have silly policy outcomes because you've you're missing 
key components of what's happening. And what's important, and, and Kapiti is a good coaster, the uh, example of that is that it's the sediment supply that's important. And so when we look back at the rock record, if we have sufficient sediment, what sea level rise causes is accretion at the coastline. Yep. At which point your planning problems go away. <laughs> so the, the issue is, is that if we can imagine, it, there's this program on TV, Gold Rush, you know, when I'm preparing dinner, so I kind of have it going. And we we get the gold out of the, the, the sediment by washing it through a structure where there are holes, riffles, that the gold can fall into. If there are no holes, then there's all this heartache and problem and everything else because all the gold that they're collecting is washing away. It's the same at the coast. If you have a hole for the sand to go into as it's moving along our coastline, which it, it often does because we have lots of sediment going out to our coastline, except when we do things like build dams on the Clutha River mm. and the Waikato River. But for the most part, we've got lots of sediment coming out, and according to the climate predictions, we're going to get even more in the future because we're going to get all this erosion of our hills and everything else. So we've got lots of sediment. If we have a hole, then it's going to accumulate. The problem we have in some of our coastal areas is that we don't have a hole because it's filled up. But if sea level rises, we've got a new hole, and we suddenly get accretion. In other places, we've got an area that's low energy, which is the Kapiti Coast and the lee of Kapiti Island. There's a huge hole there. And the main problem they have there is that there's been so much accretion that the southern part of that hole no longer exists. So sand can't accumulate anymore. And so there are parts that erode. So if you as a council want to know what parts of your coastline are going to suffer from sea level rise. You look for the areas where there's no sediment supply. How do you find them? Well, you talk to the old people and you look at the newspaper articles, you talk to Tangata Whenua and say, where have you had coastal erosion for the last 100 years? And surprise, surprise, those are the places that you're going to have coastal erosion in the future. So as I said, it's the data we've got already that we need to look at, not the computer models. So too, it's quite simple. easy. We we know I can go to the coastline and walk along it and say, oh, this area is going to have a problem because it's eroding now. It has a sediment supply problem. If we raise the, the sea level and we create a bigger hole, there's going to be an even bigger deficit of sediment, so there's going to be a problem. What we need to try and do is figure out which parts of the coastline in the future, if we raise sea level, we'll switch from having a surplus of sediment to having a deficit of sediment. And that's mm -hmm. that's the key to our management. Um, wow. And that that's not what sea rise does. It's not what the millions of dollars they've just given to Victoria University is going to achieve because they have a simplistic argument that says if sea level rises, then the coast is going to erode, despite the fact that one of the key people in the program is a former student of ours who did his thesis on the Whanganui Basin, which showed that sea level rise caused accretion. So he knows that. Wow. 
And and that's the, that's the basis of sequence stratigraphy. So we know that sea level rise, if there's sufficient sediment, will cause accretion, and the problem of managed retreat isn't necessary. Managed retreat, and, and I've been involved in advising that this is the place to do it uh, for, for various sites, is for sites where, for various reasons, there is now insufficient sediment supply. So That's for parts of Auckland, they've, they've built a, a wall to stop the cliffs from eroding and they've cut off the sediment supply. So there are places we can identify, but most of our coast is fine. So none of this is hard if you do the observation and listen to people that have, um, have been studying for years. None of this is hard. Um, so, Sean, just to, to get to the conclusion of this, um, what sort of... What's your next next step with your efforts to try and get some common sense effectively back into your council? Well, I just want to pick up on something that Jaspreet said, and it's relevant to the observations, right? So um, we can look at the sea rise modelling for um, for where the Wellington tide gauges. I can go to that location and pull up, and it says that by 2020, thou shalt have seven centimetres of sea level rise at the lowest emission pathway. Mm -hmm. And we got, the tide gauge tells me we got two centimetres. So, you know, the modelling, the the disconnect between the modelling community and the observational scientists has been growing wider and wider ever since the days of the great Hubert Lamb, uh, who was the greatest climate scientist of all time. And, And he would take careful observations of, Things like um, fossilised mammoths um, coming out of of the ice. Well, obviously, that tells us that at some point this area was warmer uh, than it used to be, uh, than it is now. And and the modelling community, unfortunately, and I'm not being critical of of them, but modelling is incredibly complex. Um, Statistical uh, analysis can be... Um, you know, uh, manipulated or, or it, it can be, it, it's unreachable to the ordinary person. The ordinary person and the ordinary coastal planner can go to a tide gauge and go, oh, there it is. And actually Wellington Harbour's tide gauge, if you take the average of the, uh, uh, the rolling average of what's happened over the last 100 years and extrapolate that forward, you get an exact match for what would have happened in tw- will happen in 2020. And I expect will be pretty close in 2030 as well. So why are why are we um, um, using modelling that's showing already to be totally wrong? Uh, you know, not just a little bit wrong, but two and a half, three times wrong um, in, in this particular area and and in other aspects of climate science as well. Um, the modelling community uh, in the eighties uh, and nineties uh, secured huge amounts of funding um, for uh, supercomputers. Um, you know, and, and have made an enormous contribution, no doubt about it, since uh, I think the early um, numerical weather predictions were, were started in the 50s. Um, and, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's incredible science. But we sometimes, I just think we need to go back to reality. You know, what some people would like us to think was that coastal planners have never thought about sea level rise before. Well, I, I just doubt that's the case at all. I think coastal planners have always thought about that. That's the number one thing they have to think about. And uh, and they've been doing that since coastal planning was 
a twinkle in Adam's eye. So, you know, this idea that it's, it's something new and it's exciting and, and models and so on, we just need to get back down to earth and go, okay, what's the likely thing that's going to happen? And my view is that we should be looking at the, uh, the, the tide gauges maybe with some uh, localised um, estimates on vertical land movement, which I would actually say is cancelling a subsidence and uplift is cancelling each other each out. Other. Over the very long term, uh, geological time, New Zealand's coming up out, out of the water. You can see it all around the country. I like Kaikoura, the Kaikoura Coast. You can see uh, those creatures that Willem mentioned earlier uh, that, that died and, and the rocks are all there. And this is all over. Where I grew up in Taradale Napier, the highest point there is Sugarloaf and you can climb up there and find shellfish, uh, shells, fossilised shellfish there. So this is not new. So we really need to start thinking more carefully about First of all, ignoring short-term data sets about subsidence because they quite clearly do not model the medium to long-term. Look at the tide gauges, extrapolate that forward for, for planning purposes with, with some caution, perhaps no harm in that. Um, because, But you know, when you think about it, we've had global warming now for 100 or so years. Um, and is, is there any reason to think that, that more melt, ice is melting now than it did 50 years ago? Because the stuff that melted 50 years ago was probably lower to the ground, um, is in a warmer, you know. So, you know, we don't suddenly start getting more melt water because the easy stuff to melt's already melted. If you know yeah. what I mean. And in fact, we're actually seeing record snow cover. I think in um, in North America at the moment. Um, and that's, you know, you can argue that that's consistent with climate modelling. We get more water in the atmosphere. Um, we, we therefore get more snow. So, you know, you could argue, you know, next thing we'll hear is there's record snow in Antarctica and it's all because of climate change. Um, so I just think we need to be take a, a, um, a careful perspective, a, a, a reality perspective. And we should also, you know, be open to alternative views um, and be willing to listen. John, if I may interrupt you for a moment, what's happening in councils, and I'll, I'll speak for myself here, is most councillors are generalists. We are not subject specialists. And we count on this information coming through the ministry and these guidance documents. Because, you know, as, as I mentioned to you guys before, not everyone enjoys going through over a thousand pages of IPCC document. Not everyone enjoys poring over the website of NZC Rise and using their tool and seeing what's happening. And I, for one, on the behalf of my ratepayers, I take major offense at being misguided and then being, you know, ushered down this path as if I, I cannot think for myself. I absolutely detest this. But I wonder, you know, I know we are already short of time. If you could take two minutes, Sean, and point out some of the gaping holes in this NZC Rise tool that we are using and insurers are using right now to sort of virtually destroy people's lives, their houses, uh, you know, property values and so on. What are the main faults with this tool? So, uh, and Willem might be better placed to answer this than me, but um, there was a, uh, they did satellite data between 2004 and 2010, um, and that was chosen deliberately because it was seismically, New Zealand was seismically inactive. And as a consequence, um, you know, you need seismic activity to get the lift that New Zealand's mm. been trending on for the last billions of years sort of thing. So if I so, get this right, they're using seven years' worth of data to project 100, 200, 300 years in the future. Yeah, Am I yeah, right? 
Yes, okay. they are. In fact, they even stripped out the uh, big earthquakes that were that happened in in um, the Kaikoura. bottom of the South Island, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which would have uplifted. Um, so you take this data set that um, shows a subsiding trend because when an earthquake happens, following it, the, the ground sinks Lift. till mm-hmm. the next one. Um, they've ignored what's known as slow slip events, well documented by GNS, uh, which are affecting company now. So they are imperceptible earthquakes that happen over months and years that slowly drag the uh, the coast uh, back up. Um, and the uplifting trend from, uh, you know, the episodic earthquakes, you know, 1855 in Wellington, 1931 in, in Napier um, and Kaikoura as well. So, you know, and, and, and so they've got this data set of, of New Zealand sinking um, and it's not. Uh, then they're adding on to that their uh, IPCC calculations of eustatic sea level, which is interesting. It's a funny old way of doing it because eustatic sea level means nothing to a coastal owner in uh, on the Kapiti Coast or at Wellington Harbour. It's got no relationship whatsoever to, to um, relative sea level around New Zealand. But nevertheless, that's what they're doing. And so, of course, then they're running it through their models, their climate models, which, as I mentioned earlier, are already showing a incredibly um, error-prone uh, approach um, to come up with this big, um, big problem, which isn't really being observed by anyone who lives on the coast. Well, and then they're being yeah. driven by activists uh, and, and some outspoken scientists. Uh, you know, Willem mentioned a student before. And not um, to mention a few million dollars that's gone in the funding. Yeah, look, I don't want to be – you can be cynical about this, but, you know, I know that they're trying to do make new science and do good things, but, you know, I was a city councillor representative. Uh, I was a member alumnus of the Earth, uh, Earth Science and Geography School of Victoria University. One of the guys I actually shared a platform with when we briefed the Niwi about different things and we had a good, warm conversation. We'd seen each other since, and they wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't meet with me, wouldn't explain. Um, and, uh, and and then, you know, I started getting support from, from Willem. I knew I was on the right track. Uh, another leading scientist in the geoscience space at uh, Canterbury University was also saying, you're absolutely right, Sean, doesn't want to be named. Um, in fact, this is the problem, actually. Uh, the, the sort of scientists that I've spoken to don't want to go on the record. What we do have, though, a little bit of hope next week at the Geoscience of New Zealand conference is a poster session uh, by uh, by two scientists uh, and a Otago University scientist. So these two of them are actual geoscience experts, Tim Stern and Simon Lamb. And the other one is Paul Denise, who's a genuine sea level expert. And they are going to present their poster, which says that, you know, we've got to move away from this sea rise modelling and go back to the tide gauges. So hopefully someone at Ministry for Environment listens to that and um, and we can maybe start getting a bit of traction with them. Final comments from you, Willem. Have you got anything to add? Yeah, to no, I, I agree with that. And the, the thing that concerns me from the science point of view is that the projections that they have in there, because I've deconstructed their data and compared it to the the vertical lift land movement produced by GNS, which is a key component of it, and the IPCC projections. And they have actually tweaked the IPCC projections, so they're not the projections that have come out of the IPCC, but they've been modified. And so what I've been waiting for in part of their peer-reviewed publication is an explanation of what they have done and why they have actually inflated these these numbers for New Zealand, given that 
the work done by C-Rise in its early days showed that the the eustatic sea level rise, the absolute sea level rise for New Zealand is less than half of, of this global one that they're using. So there are components of what they've done that have not yet been peer-reviewed, and that is a concern to me because they're not telling us what it is they've done to produce the numbers that are going in. So people say we should use peer-reviewed research to to advise our policy. Well, CRISE, which is being pushed as a policy tool, has not been peer-reviewed and comes with a disclaimer that says it's not suitable for use for for, for planning. Learning. And that, that I think, is, is my final, final view of it. Yep. Fantastic. Look, um, we've taken an hour of your time, gentlemen, and it's interesting, uh, as a layman, at the end of all that, I just think of the words complicit uh, in terms of the officialdom presenting this, the lawyer, uh, sorry, the uh, politicians and the and the officials within departments. And, and the other word that comes to mind is duplicitous. And it bothers me because, as I said, as a layman, as a farmer, I'm paying the bill, uh, as you are. And we're sick of this nonsense in the in this country, uh, especially with our, the state of our books. It's not not flash, and yet we can still put more costs onto ratepayers um, through councils or through government policy. And interestingly, um, Sean, in your document uh, that you wrote with Catherine Moody, you said at the end, we need to be more realistic when it comes to policy development regarding sea level rise projections and managed retreat, screwing the scrum with the use of unlikely and implausible climate change scenarios, uh, SSP 5 to 8.5 and 8.5 H plus needs to be yellow carded. Well, Thinking of the Rugby World Cup and the All Black captain, it needs to be red carded. Gentlemen, thanks very much for your, your contribution today. So we had Dr. William DeLonghi from Waikato University and Sean Rush, a barrister from Wellington. Um, we loved having you on because that, for the layman and me, it just um, made so much uh, uh, fit into place. So thank you very much, gentlemen. And um uh, we hope to have you back sometime, but on perhaps a different subject. I'd love to know more about LIDAR, for instance. I'd love to know a lot about a lot of different things. But, Jasper, what do you think? Have we got Absolutely. enough to get your get your council <laughs> back on track? <laughs> that remains to be seen. But, yeah, I am, I'm glad we ended at that note. We do need a reality check. As Sean knows and others up in Wellington, people are facing real-time ramifications for these implausible models and that cannot be allowed to continue so thank you gentlemen for helping bolster our faith that we ain't just going down with this right so well, thanks very much happy thanks. to help out and i will happily come to your council and, and public participation and share my thoughts that's free thank you sean we might just take you up on it and thank yeah. you so much willow it's all right i enjoyed my time down there when i did the humbridge track uh, earlier in the year oh fantastic Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.